0: I'd say the probably the biggest question that I'm asking myself right now is um, how long-term organizations uh, operate. Uh, I've spent the last 22 years kind of building the the largest iconic long-term thinking project, the 10,000 year clock with the Long Now Foundation, and we've always known from the beginning that the, in a way, the easy project was engineering a machine to last for 10,000 years, but that the really the difficult project is how do you make an institution that lasts for 10,000 years. Uh, We have 10,000 year objects um, and artifacts that have lasted this long, but we know that there's no institutions or organizations that have lasted on this time scale. So um, I've been doing kind of some survey work and figuring out what are the oldest um, living organizations in the world. And you have things like universities that were invented a thousand years ago and Um, some extant religions like the Catholic Church that were started almost 2,000 years ago. Um, But neither of those are, uh, the university is possibly a a good model to be looking at, but I'm also looking for portable knowledge that could be used in other, either businesses, nonprofits, um, cultural organizations, um, and so looking at anything from kind of communities of practice like martial arts that have handed things down through centuries, um, or even getting inspired by uh, natural systems, either clonal systems that have, um, you know, like a, a manzanita bush, when it dies, it, the root system then grows out and you have a ring of manzanitas, and they've now measured these to be 40 or 50,000 years old. Um, so it's, a, it's it's the same kind of DNA, but it's been, uh, it's been reincarnated, and then you you look at um, other strategies in nature, like the bristlecone pine, the oldest continuously living single organism. And instead of um, a clonal system like that, they actually the, the wood is is almost rock like, um, and uh, in fact, rock erodes faster around its roots than than the wood does over five thousand years. Um, and the, my favorite quote about the um, the bristlecone is that it's not that it lives for a really long time, it's just that it takes a very long time to die. And that, you know, you'll see these very old bristlecones, it will just be one strip of bark uh, and a few sprigs of needles at the end. Um, so there's all of these kind of strategies um, coming from nature. Um, or also looking um, at the oldest living companies in the world. Uh, most of them are interestingly service-based. And um, so there's some you know, family-run hotels and uh, and things like that, but also a huge amount in um, kind of the food and beverage industry. Uh, probably a third of the organizations or the the companies over uh, 500 or a thousand years old are all in some way in wine, beer, sake uh, production, and I think it's. Um, I got intrigued by that crossover and. The more I looked into it, what's interesting is that basically humanity figured out how to ferment things about 10,000 years ago, which is exactly the kind of time frame where people started creating cities and agriculture. And it's actually very unclear, I think, if um, civilization started because we could ferment things or uh, we started fermenting things and therefore civilization started. Um, but there's clearly this um, highly intertwined link with um fermenting um, either beer or wine, um, and then much later spirits, um, and then how that fits in with hospitality and um, places that people gather. I think it's a huge part of it. Um, and so um, all of these things are, are right now just nascent bits and pieces of trying to figure out what are some of the ways that organizations live for a very long time And um, while some of them, like being a family-run hotel, may not be very portable as an idea, um, some of them like um, some of the natural strategies or just starting to understand um, how you be of service to humanity. Um, And so if we broaden the idea of service industry to, you know, is our customer civilization? um, How can you make an institution that, um, whose customer is civilization and can last for a very long time? If we look at civilization as our kind of primary customer in terms of t- how to create long-term organizations um, and how we create service to, to civilization, uh, it's probably also worth stepping back and looking at what, what we're now calling civilization. And right now we're at a time where identity and um, personhood and um, all parts of public life and private life are, are in a high amount of flux. And so I think it's it's an interesting question if this is a I think it's I think it's very likely that right now that what work the kind of technology especially with social media that we're now struggling with and how it how it changes our agency in the world um, and mobile technologies that um, that these are. These are things that we have overused in a certain way, that we're going to pull back from in a in a in a fair amount. And we already see it with younger generations not using the the social media tools anywhere near as extensively as the people who are, you know, in their teens, twenties, and thirties when they were invented and they came on the scene. Uh, almost no very young people I know uses Facebook, for instance. So I think I think we're going to see that um, there's this funny group of people that um, that bought into um, a lot of these new things because we had been always buying into the new thing um, for a while and this is the first time it's really bit us back. And so I, I can see that agency and uh, identity is actually going to come back to a certain extent as we um, pick and choose from the tools, that either media, social media tools or mobile communication tools in ways that are empowering rather than um, dangerous and insecure I think it's uh, I think it's highly likely um, and we're already seeing you know so much um, backlash from it and we're also about to start seeing the first generation of people going into public life who grew up with these tools um, and grew up with digital pictures of themselves um, and videos of themselves doing stupid things for their entire life and I think the other side of thing of this may just be that, since that happens to everybody, um, we're just going to be less concerned with uh, with a lot of these types of things. We we already see this now. You know, given um, the kind of what used to be scandals are no longer even considered scandals uh, in public life anymore. So I think um, I think we may get our agency back either through picking and choosing among the tools or just becoming so jaded to. Um, to what used to be scandals and used to be problematic in public and private life, um, and that'll just be all life at some point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's always worth, especially when you're working on something this long and this uh, this expensive and, and kind of bringing in this many resources as the ten thousand year clock project, to to understand why you're doing it and also understand um, you know what you could be doing with that time and energy and, and money in another way and. Um, you know it's it is expensive in one sense, and there's always the critique of you know why aren't you feeding the hungry children with the money that you could be spending on something like this clock project? Um, but fundamentally, the amount of money that we're spending is somewhere around the cost of a Hollywood movie. And um, I would like to think that if we if we do, uh, succeed in making the clock into an amazing experience that people can hold in their minds as uh, an example of really long-term thinking that they want to visit to, that they um, that they create stories about, and it becomes in some way mythic. Yes. Telescopes are, are very similar both in cost and in type of project. You're, you're building some strange one-off object up on the top of a, of a remote mountain. Um, and um, you know, while we're not gonna get pictures of the cosmos, I think this is more of a, a mirror back onto people that visit it or think about it. Um, so it can be a thought experiment for some people. It can be a visiting experience for some people. Um, it can be a literary experience for some people. So, uh, but I, I think that if, if we do our job right, if we inspire you know, some small, even small number of people to take on projects that are, that are and lengthen the, the attention span of civilization, just a little bit, so that we can look beyond just the shortest term thing. Um, I think it's it's going to be you know worth at least the cost of one Hollywood movie, um, and there's certainly enough of those that are made and thrown away that um, that I, that I'm hoping that this gets to. But and it is true that we're living in a in a unique moment where we have um, we have kind of wealth concentrated in in ways that people can make a choice to to fund something like the clock. Uh, And I think that's. It has, you know, we've seen disadvantages to that because it also means that they can direct philanthropic dollars in ways that um, used to be the purview of the government, but it also means, you know, for instance, the government would never, ever fund the clock project. And so um, we can decide if that's good or bad, but I think it, there are some of the quixotic things that I think have chances of having much higher value than um, than a government-funded project that would only be funded through um, you know lengthy committees and peer review and has to give lots of value back. Um, unless you were just funding it as art, um, and I don't think they would fund it on that scale. Um, I can't imagine it happening. So I think there is a place for this type of um, kind of philanthropic, um, in a way, strangeness, and we want that in the world, and we want to have a place for it in the world. I think that's a separate argument if we're talking about how we educate the country or the world or how we feed the world or how we solve climate change. if Those, are, those to me, seem like integral governmental problems, um, but not how we provoke the world. Those are generally not... When a government provokes the world, it's usually through acts of military. And I think what we want is to provoke the world through um, some kind of future artifact that um, that lives on uh, through time. And I think there's there's almost no uh, there's there's almost no artifacts that have been built for very long periods of time. You look at things like the pyramids or Stonehenge you know where we know what the pyramids were for as a tomb we don't really know what stonehenge was for um but um we don't really feel as though when we find them that we're looking back in time and, and thinking that those generations actually cared about us and i think that's the fundamental message that we're hoping for with the clock um there's two things one for the present as it's kind of a message of hope about the present that we are going to um solve problems continue to solve problems and And have uh, a good way of life as we move forward but also that we um, you know if if we were to have burrowed into this mountain and found the clock already ticking um, you know what clock do we wish we had found and what intent do we wish that those people had for us and um, and to me it's that i wish that i would find something that made me feel as though past generations cared about me yeah so i got involved in the Long Now Foundation, originally um, through Stuart Brand. I, um, I grew up on the Sausalito waterfront in a junkyard um, that we moved into when I was seven. And it was all artists and vaguely legal and illegal activities and boat builders uh, there. And it was, uh, it was, it w- it was often called, called the last free ride in this part of California. It was a place where people could live rent-free if they w- were willing to live funky enough. Um, and, um, through, um, my family trying to save that waterfront area, I met Stuart probably when I was I don't know, eight or nine years old and probably fell asleep under tables while meetings were going on through a lot of my childhood. And, um, but I kept in touch with him throughout, uh, my education and when I was starting career back here in San Francisco, mostly doing, um, virtual world design on the kind of first wave of, uh, of VR in the mid-90s. And um, Stuart told me about this project, that's, which at the time was really just a conversation, uh, an email listserv that included Danny Hillis and Brian Eno and Kevin Kelly and Esther Dyson, uh, a number of, of others, Paul Sappho, Peter Schwartz. Um, and they had, it was all kind of... Um, brought about by this moment where Danny had, had mentioned this idea after after building the fastest computers in the world throughout the 80s with his company, Thinking Machines, Danny Hillis um, had become a bit obsessed with this idea of building the slowest computer in the world, um, a computer, effectively a clock, that would tick once a year and bong once a century and the cuckoo would come out once a millennium. And um, I think as... John and I think possibly others have said that, that Danny Hillis has a lot of amazing ideas um, and per, per conversation, really. But um, as he talked about this one, um, I think several times and over several conversations, Stuart really um, latched onto it. And as somebody who has been at the forefront of several movements, I think he realized that this was an important one. And uh, he was the one who incorporated... Uh, a nonprofit around it, originally called Clock Library. Stewart thought that um, it was going to be the Clock Project, and then w- once you got people's attention, then what do you do with it? it should, there should be a library that kind of serves civilization on the same um, multi-millennial timescale as the clock. And um, but Stewart told me about this idea, and he he also got me a bunch of interviews with you know some early fledgling, what would eventually become dot com companies. Uh, and I went on those, and they were very promising, but I couldn't get this idea of the clock out of my head. It just was this kind of brain bug that um, that really worked for me as somebody who was trained in industrial design and had really railed against the idea of designing more plastic toasters as the thing I was going to go into for my living. Um, the only thing I really enjoyed doing was designing and building one-off objects, and so this really hit that, as well as, you know, most even in, when you're designing one-off objects, you only get to, um, get to design and engineer it until it's good enough, and then you put it out there. And in the case of this clock project, it was clear that we weren't trying to design something good enough. We were trying to design something that was an absolute masterpiece, both in engineering, in the way it looked and felt, and changed the way people thought about time. So it was an art piece as well as an engineering piece. We were going to use the best uh, materials in the world and do peer research into um, an area that really no one has ever done research into in terms of making something last on this timescale. So it kind of hit on all the buttons for me. And so I I came back to Stuart and I said, you know, I don't really want to work on any of these other digital projects. I want to work on the clock. And uh, we were lucky um, that uh, there was already a board retreat planned Uh, in Aspen at Doug Carlston's house, who's one of the other board members, and he was the founder of uh, Broderbund Software. And um, that was coming up in a couple weeks, and he asked the board if I could come basically to just provide drawing and modeling support as this design charrette was going on uh, at Doug Carlston's house in Aspen. And um, so we flew in Doug's plane at the time and um, spent, I don't know, four days in uh, in Aspen designing parts of the clock. And that was where I met Danny Hillis for the first time. And he had a prototype of this thing called the bit serial adder, which was a way of doing uh, binary calculation in an analog manner with levers for ones and zeros that he wanted to use on the clock. Um, and he and I really hit it off. And I, one of the things that came up in that meeting was this idea of, um, of using a spiral structure because spirals are really great for depicting time. Um, the nice thing about them is that, you know, if you're, especially if you're depicting time a long time ago, where you know less, you can use that as the center of the spiral. And then you always know more about the present. And so you can use a kind of, make a spiral timeline as a way of depicting uh, time. And they got intrigued by that. And they were talking about building a building that, that used spirals. And what if it used spirals that that counter-rotated? No one really knew how to draw that. I couldn't draw it. So I modeled this counter-rotating spiral building um, physically with, just uh, some foam board, and it kind of coalesced the conversation for that weekend, and um, and we, we never ended up building this, um, but we did go further with the design, but it, was, uh, it, it really helped that weekend kind of get through um, part of the discussion that they were getting through, and um, so I got hired, and they really just said, all right, we'll cover your salary, just quit what you're doing now and start working on uh, the clock project, and at the time, um, the only thing I thought we were going to do was uh, basically, build the first prototype of the clock. Danny said he had a friend who could help fund it. I spent the next two years working with Danny Hillis, who I had never, I never really heard of before this project. And uh, the more I worked with him, um, and the more I got to know his background, you know, he he had been building the fastest supercomputers in the world. He also um, had done you know his educational projects um, with some of the other early. Um, computer pioneers like the logo program um, for Apple, so really disparate, uh, what you would think of as very disparate projects, but I think that the amazing thing about working with Danny is that his ability to zoom from the absolute micro scale to the macro scale, from the social to the scientific, um, you know, he's just as comfortable talking to a trucker in the middle of Nevada as he is some of the greatest mathematicians in the world. and so it's a, he's a rare combination of both genius, and when I say genius, I, I, I almost never use that term uh, at all, but I would say he certainly qualifies, and that he, um, he doesn't seem to have any of the uh, bad attitude or... Um, kind of savant-like qualities that that make a lot of uh, very, very smart people very difficult to um, live in the world. He's a highly socialized person. So it was really amazing to get to know him um, both as a friend um, and uh, learning from him in the way that he thinks and, and op- operates for building this clock. Um, he's also, he had, strangely, he has a great sense of aesthetics and mechanics and engineering, um, which is also very rare. So. Um, this two years was really me getting to know Danny and Danny getting to know me to a certain extent. Um, we we realized that for the Long Now Foundation had to use five-digit dates going forward. We had to add the extra zero in the front of uh, any year date because we were going to be, the clock itself had to read out to the year 12,000 at least if we were going to start it um, uh, in the, the this current century. And... But we were also moving up to the year 2000, and the goal for the first prototype was to have it ring twice because we wanted it had to, you know, the cuckoo effectively had to come out twice for uh, the second millennium. And um, so it was this strange thing where we were building a very slow object um, that was meant to um, get people to think longer term, but we were kind of up against the same millennium deadline that so much of our um, kind of collective temporal intelligence has also been up against. And Danny's Point of this project from uh, the beginning was really that as he grew up, the future had been growing, had been shrinking one year per year for his entire life. That no one was thinking past the year 2000. It was actually stunning how few people were thinking past the year 2000, literally within days before the millennium turnover happened. Um, in fact, when we tried to have an event at some public venues in San Francisco, they wouldn't rent it to us because of the calamity that they thought was going to happen that night, which was just bizarre. Um, and so um, we worked really hard and, and literally we got the clock working at, um, at about 8 p.m. Uh, on uh, the night of uh, New Year's Eve uh, 1999. And, um, and then one of the dials went the wrong way. Um, and cause and we'd realized that we had left the ability to switch the dials until the end, we thought, oh, we'll just do that at the end. And uh now it was 8 p.m. on New Year's Eve and we had the dials were gonna index the wrong direction for the year. Um and so we uh we raced across the Golden Gate Bridge to the machine shop and made a new shaft and raced back across. And luckily it was the Y2K um New Year's Eve because nobody was out. It was people were terrified to be out that night. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was no traffic, we were able to do it, and uh, we literally tested the, the the switchover of the millennium, which included all of the exceptions in the calendar mechanism and all of the most difficult parts of the clock uh, in front of everybody at midnight, and it worked great. Um, and from there, we um, it was almost immediately after that, I think um, it was, um, Danny was talking with uh, Nathan Merville the 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 an early CTO at Microsoft and so um, we kind of seamlessly went into the next prototype project and that um, that ended up being a, a planetary display that used uh, Danny Hillis's um, binary mechanical adder that was basically a way to show the the human eye visible planets for the ten thousand year clock and we spent um, Probably from about two thousand one or two to two thousand five, um, building that, and um, one of them uh, went to Nathan Mervolt's house, and one of them uh, went is is in our collection, and we have it here on display in San Francisco. And um, around that same time, we actually we met Jeff Bezos, and he started um, he funded um, the Long Betts project for Long Now very early on, I think two thousand one and two thousand two, and and he. Very much had you know the core of the Amazon business was about long-term thinking. To him, he published his, his the letter his quarterly letter about um, for stockholders was titled "It's all about the long term." And he's reattached that to every single statement, quarterly statement since then. Um, and so this message of long-term thinking I think really resonated with Jeff, and he came to visit the property that we originally purchased. Um, in nevada to take a look at that and um and then he when he was buying land for blue origin he also had land that could work for us and uh, so in 2005 um danny and he agreed to start working on this project together and there were several sites on the property that looked like we could just start building in. they had underground facilities already and there was caves already um, but um, those didn't work out for kind of various access reasons so we decided to build our own underground site for the clock um, which drastically increased its scale uh, from our original um, supposition and um, of kind of tens of feet and that it was all of a sudden it was you know 500 feet of vertical space that we were building the clock in and and that changed the design considerably and so we've spent the last um, now 14 years working on that project and um, we're we're now at the phase of installing the clock. Um, But I think even more importantly than the clock project, in a way, the part, the cultural institution part is the part that's also built out over time. We, originally this was just gonna be, okay, we're gonna build a clock and maybe some kind of way to store information over 10,000 years. And um, we have done some interventions in information storage as well. Um, We spent about a decade collecting language information that we could uh, micro etch into a metal disc that could last for thousands of years using a technology originally developed by um, Los Alamos Labs, um, effectively repurposing um, the types of machines that write microcircuitry, uh, gallium ion beam machines that etch into silicon and then you can plate metal on top of that and make it uh, make a very long lasting archive. And our take was, if you, the very first thing you have to make if you're gonna try and save information over a very long period of time, you have to solve all of the platform dependence issues. So you can't make it in a computer disk. It should be something that you can read, but you want it to have the density of digital data. So it should be small, but not so small that you can't read it without optics. You don't want to have a scanning electron microscope be the only way you can read something that's going to last for a long time. And so we had to balance all of those things. We ended up building this this thing called the Rosetta disk. Um, And the final platform dependence that we had to solve um, in the first piece of thing that the first piece of information that was going to go in our library was um, language dependence. And so that's why we collected parallel information in thousands of languages from around the world and micro etched it onto this disk um, to effectively be a language key for any information that happens to survive into the future. And one of those was launched on the European Space Agency's uh, Rosetta mission. Uh, it's now on a comet and uh, and then another one was launched about three days ago to land on the moon with the um, genesis mission um, that was launched a private effort from israel and so these um, these kind of information storage interventions have become in a way another um, another way to provoke people to think about the much much longer time spans uh, and strangely have now interacted with a bunch of space projects. Um, I think a good way to think about the Long Now Foundation is it was born out of a, a bit of a lineage of the whole Earth um, catalog group that um, that was this loose-knit group of people that came in and out as the catalog kind of re-emerged and re-emerged uh, over the years and then um, and then uh, Global Business Network was started by a lot of those same people, people like uh, that worked on the catalog like P- Peter Schwartz, Stuart Brand, Lawrence Wilkinson, uh, and and others who um, who wanted to build a new organization for how to help companies and, and other organizations think about the future. Um, and so when Long Now started, it was the same kind of cohort of people and in a way a lot of the traditions of how they do things in uh, a highly collaborative, highly trusting way, um, and I've I grew up around nonprofits, and I think they often suffer from the fact that there is an idea person who then gathers a very rich and powerful board around themselves, and that board never really gets along very well because they don't. The only thing they have in common is this person, um, and uh, in this case, it was a board that was created, and they hired me originally as the first employee, and then we've now grown to a staff of if you include all of our contractors, uh, well over 100 people. Um, and that, that trust that that board has is this amazing thing. So one of the projects, for instance, that we, we wanted to do was this project called Long Bets, which was a way of betting on things of social and scientific consequence over the long term. And pretty much everybody on the board, besides uh, Kevin and Stuart, uh, Kevin Kelly, the, the founding editor at WIRED, um, and Stuart Brand who w- wanted to do this project um, thought it was a horrible idea. we were going to get in tons of trouble with you know everything from the gaming commission to the IRS for our tax uh, exempt status and um, but in the end they let them do it um, because they trusted them to do it. I don't think there, there's very few nonprofits that I think would would have that level of trust among their board to take a risk like that and that project just paid out you know, Two point two million dollars to a charity through a um, a bet that Warren Buffett uh, placed for a decade through the system. Um, so it's a it's a, it's done it's done some interesting good in the world, and it was a very risky uh, endeavor uh, for I think no, most most normal nonprofits to have done. So I mean, I I signed onto this project to build a clock um, almost uh, you know twenty two years ago, and uh, actually twenty two years ago, about to this month, and. Um, I think the, the question there's question I think for the in the organization of Long Now what we do after that point. We're also getting to the point where our founders are getting older and and um and there's gonna be a generational shift for the founders and then this clock will be out in the world and it will it will no longer be a a perfect idea, it will be an imperfect object. Um and it will be you it, it can be criticized it can be you know people can say it's not going to work people can say it didn't change the way they thought about time so I think we're gonna long now is going to be coming into a much different phase in its next you know 25 years than it did in its first 25 years the most dangerous time for an organization is one generation after they're founded um, the second generation has the most difficult time. Um, it's no longer the new shiny object, but they're not quite old enough to be an antique and be um, be valuable for being so old. It's a really difficult thing to know how to measure the impact of, of Long Now and how, if we're affecting, you know, moving the needle on long-term thinking at all at this point. But I think, you know, the, the goal really from the beginning was to create new myths, to create something that was worthy of a story that would stick and in culture. And, um, I think you know, probably the, in that sense, one of the biggest successes you can point to is when Neil Stevenson wrote, a, you know, effectively a New York times bestseller, uh, science fiction book that featured the idea of the 10,000 year clock, uh, mm-hmm. as, um, part of the world building that he did. And we haven't even finished the clock yet. Mm-hmm. So, um, so hopefully that kind of, um, world building and myth building and story building is what we can keep inspiring. And um, I'm hoping that once the clock is actually out there, that that takes place some more. Um, but we are already seeing um, policy makers reference, you know, either talks from us or diagrams that we have put out there. I think Stewart's Pace Layer Diagram of that starts with fashion on the outside and goes down through governance and uh, commerce and culture and nature at the bottom moving the slowest um that came out of a conversation with him and brian you know it was actually the very first thing i worked on this project was uh, making a nice version of that diagram that came out of their conversation um, about how to kind of tease apart the layers of human time Mm -hmm. and that I've i've now seen used literally by um you know british parliamentarians um and um u.s government workers and uh What's interesting with the Clock Project is that in, at every stage it was, it was funded by a, um, a single person, whereas every other part of Long Now and all of our other projects um, were almost always funded by groups of people and gathering donations around an idea. Um, and that you know, included things like the Rosetta Project and then conferences and our seminar series and the Interval, which is our space here in San Francisco. Um, but with the clock project, it was always done more, more like the Medici model of a, a single wealthy benefactor. Um, just because I think it is so quixotic and so, um, I mean, frankly, kind of weird of a project to be doing that, um, you can't really get groups to do it. Even though, I think that we have gathered a lot of people around Long Now that the clock project is the, in a way, the most important thing to them about Long Now, and so. Um, when Jeff came on to fund the, the full scale clock project, um, we started really at the beginning. There's very few projects that people get to work on in their lives that, um, that can be done at this scale and with this level of kind of high finish and, and high, engineering with, um, amazing people coming together. The, I think the other, my favorite thing about the project, the clock project really is the people that it gathers, the engineering kind of talent. Um, the, one of the more amazing engineers that we have on the project um, is, was this guy who was kind of retiring um, after building rock cutting machines his whole life. Um, but he took one look at the project and he realized it was kind of the way he could do his magnum opus and, and helped uh, by designing this 30,000 pound diamond chainsaw robot that could carve through the mountain for two years straight creating a spiral staircase where every single stair was cut uniquely. And, um, you know, these kind of people just don't exist in the free market. They kind of have to come to you. Um, and, um, we've encountered people like that throughout the project where they've come on in many cases, either donated their time or, or come out of, you know, come out of retirement or not retired for several years because they want to keep working on it. Um, and that level of kind of goodwill and, um, amazing uh, talent just doesn't come to projects just because you have the money for it. It really has to be the right idea and the right environment for it as well.